I think one of the things for me is that I've always looked for a way to do community service and to be engaged in a community. And it makes sense for me to use skills I have and in a directed manner. And so for me, it's both what makes me feel good about being a person as well as part of, you know, a very successful way to get research out into the public. And the university does consider itself a member of the community, not just Cal State Long Beach, but any university. And as such, you know, they want their faculty to be community leaders. So there is some reward. It's not really monetary or explicit, but we are expected to do service. And so to a certain extent, it counts for my real job as well. Welcome to Pelicanus. I'm your host, Austin Parker. Pelicanus highlights the people and organizations that are making it their purpose to grow the conservation field, to make right the wrongs of our past, and to show how people have and still are making a monumental difference in our world. And we want to tell their stories. So we're here to show that not only is there something that can be done, it is being done by dedicated scientists who have made conservation their life, and that we can find optimism through science. This episode is about Dr. Christine Whitcraft, a scientist who studies Southern California wetlands. As a disclaimer, both Christine and I had colds this day, so we both sound a little bit nasally. But I'd give it a listen anyway. She's awesome. Christine Whitcraft, and I'm an associate professor of biology at Cal State University, Long Beach. I am a wetland ecologist by training, and... I'm really enthusiastic about being engaged with the local community. And so I am the president of Friends of Colorado Lagoon, and I'm on a lot of other wetland boards and, I would say, advisory groups. So science advisory panels for the Southern California Wetland Recovery Project and the Bolsa Chica Conservancy and other groups that are advocating for the protection and conservation of wetlands. So Dr. Whitcraft wears many hats, but when it comes to her research... She's asking some pretty interesting questions. So I'm really interested in how wetlands work. That sort of frames my research. And how they work means, you know, what organisms are there. So the pieces that are part of an ecosystem, that means some of the plants, the invertebrates, the fish, the birds. But it also means understanding how they work. Looking at processes, particularly food webs. I'm food motivated. I assume that a lot of the things that happen in an ecosystem are related to food. And so I look at an intact food web as being part of a required healthy ecosystem. And so then specifically what I focus on is how do human activities change the way that the pieces or the structure of wetlands are and the function or the processes within it. Those human activities are introduction of non-native species, development like roads or houses that impact what comes into the wetland or how the water goes in and out and generally then what do we do to bring them back so restoration and mainly I mean somewhat the impact of putting a port on top of it is very clear so we spend a lot more time on the indirect impacts studying the impacts and restoration of wetlands is incredibly important since roughly 90% of all coastal wetlands have been destroyed they're just gone. Yeah, I mean, we don't have an, 
a much more accurate estimate for it than 90%. So the general idea is that globally, wetlands have been lost at a very high rate. It's not evenly distributed, but here in California, coastal wetlands have about a, been between an 85 and a 95% loss. And that is primarily driven by development along the coast. You know, most of the population is living on the coast or moving to the coast. And we have put incredible pressure on the ecosystems that are here on the coast, which includes coastal sage scrub and areas like that, which may have as high wetland loss, as high a loss rate as wetlands, people have estimated. So those numbers were based on U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service numbers of historic <coughs> tea sheets and things like that. Um, so we have, you know, acreage estimates that support that locally, that we have approximately the same loss rate here in Orange and L.A. counties. Is there some sort of infrastructure or legislation that is in place to protect these habitats? There is now federal legislation that is no net loss of wetlands. So it is in some ways a protected habitat type. But I think if, you, if I think about conservation more roundly, you need all those tools in the toolbox. So you need the Endangered Species Act to protect those umbrella species that save the habitat. You need the land management and zoning regulations that protect the habitat itself. And you need, uh, say, buffer legislation that protects their, some existing area around it from the indirect harms. And even worse off, are the wetland upland transition zones. They're almost completely gone. Yeah, it's really hard to get an estimate on it because people didn't necessarily historically separate out coastal salt marsh. But there's, I would say, the upland transition zone, so between upland and salt marsh, that high marsh zone, is 99% gone. It's the first one to disappear, even in the wetlands we do have left. I've heard, you know, estimates still between 90 and 95% for the coastal salt marsh. I, I grew up in the Chesapeake Bay, oh, okay. where wetlands are of a completely different scale, much, much larger. And when I came out to grad school in California, everyone asked me, why are you going to California to study wetlands? There are none left. But I think that adds a certain urgency to being a wetland ecologist in California. I want to take a step back and talk about why wetlands are important. What do they do? What do they offer us? I think wetlands offer an incredible range of what I call ecosystem functions and services. So services are those ones that, as humans, we really care about, and functions are ones that occur in the wetland anyway. So in terms of services, wetlands uh, filter runoff. So they're removing uh, heavy metals, they're removing excess fertilizers before it meets the coast. And here in California, I think that's really important because the coast is what brings us tourist dollars. It brings us um, recreation money. And if we don't have wetlands as the buffer before the coast, a lot of our inland land uses affect the uh, coast more. Wetlands are really also important for buffering the other way. So for preventing erosion from waves, from blocking storm energy. So protecting the communities that are behind wetlands is really a big function of wetlands. They also are places that are nurseries for commercially important species like halibut. They're nurseries and permanent habitat for endangered species like the Belding Savannah Sparrow and the Clapper Rail. And in general, they're recreationally important sites 
There are places where people go to fish, where they go to bird watch, where they go to kayak. And so for that, they have what I call intrinsic value. There are just ecosystems that people like to have around. You know, we've done some valuation studies that show that homes that are closer to the Colorado Lagoon are more valuable because of their view shed. So even though, you know, they're, that's a tangential economic benefit, you know, they are, people value having them around. And I think at a certain point here in California, they become more valuable because there aren't many left. I always say that one of the reasons to study urban, urban ecosystems is that all ecosystems are going to be urban at some point. Because underlying most conservation problems is human population growth. She and her students are taking these bigger questions and testing them by creating projects that have potential for tangible answers. Right now we have a project looking at long-term restoration. So we know that if you take a wetland and you fill it in, or you cut off the water flow, you really change how it works. But what we want to know is, let's just say you take away a berm around the edge of a wetland, like in Huntington Beach, where we've been working, and you suddenly, after 100 years, yet let in the tidal flow. So you now have tides coming in twice a day. What happens? Is it something we can predict, that it's just enough to, if you flood it, they will come, so to speak, and everything just restores itself? Or do you need to plant plants? And how long do you have to wait until you know that it worked? And then what does being successful mean? Like, when are we done? Or when do you stop making people do restoration? Is it enough just to create the habitat or do they need to keep coming back in to do that? So one of the questions we are asking through all of our projects is, what are the right success metrics to determine if an ecosystem is healthy? We look at a suite of basic, I would call them, abiotic parameters, so water temperature, dissolved oxygen, salinity, turbidity, the you know, visibility or amount of particles in the water, chlorophyll, representing the amount of phytoplankton you have, parameters that you can measure. The only reason I call them simple is that you can measure them on an ongoing basis with a logger, for the most part, a data logger. And those correlate with important other factors. So you can predict, say, halibut habitat use with temperature. You, we also look at you know, the shape of the bottom, so the bathymetry. We look at the flow. We also look at then what I call the sort of stepping up a level, the biotic resources, what's there in terms of zooplankton, phytoplankton, plants, uh, small prey fish, invertebrates, both in the channels and on the marsh plain, and then eventually we ask the question, you know, how does that translate to what's there for fish and birds? Those tend to be the charismatic organisms that we monitor for in terms of programmatic success, but it's, they're indicative of everything else being in place. So we try and build it up so that you can get some metrics that you could look at and figure out, you know, when you have these five components, you've really made it. This sounds very complex and confusing, but restoration has a very tangible side to it, and even for the community. Yeah, I think that's the part of restoration that is both reassuring, or conservation, I would say, that is reassuring, is that it really, sometimes it starts with one, and you have enough passion to convince people that this is dreamable, and then that it's doable, I guess, is the ultimate goal. But I think that is really, I mean, you can talk to people about restoration all day long, 
But when they look out and see a place change within their five-year time frame, I think people understand it. The neighbors, the people that use it are constantly coming up to us and saying, oh my gosh, it's amazing. Look at the wildflowers blooming in the Western Arm. Or you'll never believe what I saw in the water. Whereas previously, they couldn't see through the water. You know, it's really nice to be there for that time when people actually see a change. Conservation seems to be a mix between short-term goals and wins and long-term dreams. And the causes of the initial problems are almost always more complex than they seem. Yeah, conservation is definitely a long time fight. And it, and it takes, I mean, I, I teach conservation biology, and one of the things I always say in that class is that it has to be sound science, focused advocacy, and a whole lot of patience. Because, you know, it's, they're complex problems, and they aren't, very rarely are they rooted in just people being bad. The reason that people make choices are for very complex reasons, and so you have to get at all that complexity in order to design a solution that actually leads to something that's feasible. But how does one bring these people together to solve these problems? Well, I think also having a cohesive conversation, maybe regionally first, but you know, what are your restoration goals, and how can we meet them? And that's a conversation that I said I was part of the Southern California Wetland Recovery Project. We're trying to talk about, as a region, what should we be aiming for when there's all these little piecemeal projects going along the coast? You know, what do we aim for as a region? Some of that is science-based, and some of it's very much social-based. You know, where are the barriers to social conversations between the lagoons? Because there's a Friends of Colorado Lagoon equivalent at every wetland up and down the coast. There's between, depending on how you count, there's between 20, well, there's 29 large ones and there's like 150 small ones that go from Point Conception down to the border. So we also have the social context as, you know, how do all those groups talk and share lessons learned and resources and break down barriers between sharing those lessons in between them. But that means having cohesive goals that are grounded in good science, good social science, and once you have common goals, you can find the right people and agencies and groups to plug into them. A lot of the ideas and strategies that she's talked about have manifested themselves in one of her projects, the Colorado Lagoon in Long Beach, California, where she serves as the president of the nonprofit. Friends of Colorado Lagoon is a neighborhood organization that's focused on advocacy for the protection and restoration of a small 13-acre lagoon in the heart of urban Long Beach. And their mission has been for years, and I'll go through that more in the history, but just to call attention to the fact that this is one of the few wetlands remaining in L.A. County and really the main wetland in Long Beach. So I moved here in 2008 to Long Beach. And as I said, I've always looked for meaningful community service, both where I can meet the community, but also where I can make a difference. And so Eric Zahn pulled me into focal, as we call it, and said, hey, you know, these are all your neighbors down the street, and they're really expanding, and they're looking for more science expertise. And then it was a slippery slope up, I guess I'll call it, to becoming the president, because um, it's really a role that's transitioned through the whole group, and now I'm the president. I have been the vice president before. Okay. What happened to the Colorado Lagoon, and why was this friends group formed? 
the Colorado Lagoon story is not all that different than other wetlands, I would say, in California. Historically, people didn't recognize the value of wetlands. They were swamps. You know, the government encouraged people to convert them to more useful functions. And so what happened to Colorado Lagoon was it's at the sort of the upstream end of a large tidally influenced uh, wetland system. And construction towards the mouth has really changed that. So in the 1920s, they were preparing for the Olympics that were held in 1932, and they lengthened and straightened one of the channels, which became Marine Stadium, and that was used as the rowing venue. They started to construct Belmont Shore with the dredge materials from the wetland. They started to construct Naples Island for housing, and that took what was a sinuous estuary system and made it a very straight, human-influenced, you know, housing complex. Uh, they put in a tide gate at the downstream end of the lagoon so that they can control the weather, the water level for the diving venue. And that tells you one thing. It was still considered safe and healthy to swim there. But then, as the development progressed, there was a plan to put in a crosstown freeway. It would have crossed right where Marina Vista Park is now, and it was blocked by environmental concerns, but it still led to the ultimately the paving over and creation of roads in between Colorado Lagoon and the rest of the system. So now there's a thousand foot underground culvert, basically a big square pipe that connects Colorado Lagoon to the ocean. It was put in in the 50s and it was never cleaned out. Meanwhile, as people know, I mean, this is more hindsight that let us know this, but the runoff from streets that contained leaded gasoline, all sorts of um, contaminants, pesticides, was going straight into the lagoon through uh, 11 storm drains. Because it didn't flush properly, i.e. the tides didn't go in and out through the culvert, it just stayed there. A lot of it bound to the sediment, And so before they knew it, it was a 404 Clean Water Act impaired water body. And so there were plans on the behalf of the city to put more storm drains into the lagoon. Instead of cleaning it up, they intended to put in more. And really, the reputation had gone downhill with this. You know, if you talk to people of a certain age, they all learned to swim there. If you talk to people younger, they called it the polio pit. Not that anyone ever caught polio from it, but that you, it was just considered a pestilent, dirty water body that you wouldn't want to come in contact with. So the Friends of Colorado Lagoon was formed to fight the city's desire to put more pollution in there without cleaning it up. They recognized that it was no longer a resource in the community. And what started out as that adversarial relationship has over time completely transformed until we have a really good partnership with the city now. But that has gone hand in hand with their willingness to view this as a resource and turn it around when it's it's really one of the resources too that you know there's a lot of people that drive in from communities within Long Beach that have a much higher pollution burden than the neighborhood where it's located so this is both a safer recreation zone and it's more accessible there's no waves at the Colorado Lagoon whereas headed to the beach for a lot of communities that are not as strong swimmers or aren't as marine-oriented isn't possible or desirable, so they use this lagoon. So while it's located in a relatively affluent area, it serves a much greater population throughout Long Beach, which is really something we value about it. 
So it has both the environmental justice and the social justice aspect to the restoration. And, you know, the lagoon has taken an upswing from that dip that I talked about where they've really cleaned up the water quality. They removed 75,000 cubic yards of contaminated sediment that was treated and brought to the port of Long Beach as a partner. They rerouted the storm drains so that they go into better flushing areas. Now they're making it eelgrass habitat again. And ultimately, probably, hopefully within the next five years, that culvert's going to be daylighted. It's going to come out and become a natural stream channel. And I think that people understand that better when they get to get in there and see the critters that are living in there. And they really understand what a urban wetland can look like. All of this sounds amazing, but adding to the complexity is the local community and some unforeseen oppositions to this project. Yeah, I mean, one of the few opposition issues that came up about the Colorado Lagoon was the fact that the park that's been built on top of the culvert is heavily used. And park space is an open space resource in a community, and people are very concerned about it. But in some ways, that was dealt with by saying, all right, we hear your concern. Part of the money will go to a complete redesign, which results in zero loss of playing field space. So now a part of the field that dipped down and held water and was not used will be graded, leveled, replanted, bathrooms improved, so there's no net loss of field space. And that immediately met people where they were, which they're concerned about their ongoing activities or their kids or their access to park space, and for the most part dealt with the opposition to the plan. But initially that wasn't one of the messages that was conveyed through the project. It was just, we need a wetland, wetlands are great. But messaging is so important for it. You know, you can have a wetland without losing other resources to the community. So I wanted to find out, where did this passion for conservation and wetlands come from? Where did it all start for her? In my backyard was a pond. And it was a different time and place. It's relatively rural. But I had a watch, and I had to be home at five. And I could do what we wanted to until then. And so we spent most of our time riding bikes around the neighborhood and playing in the pond. And there were crayfish. We caught them with coffee cans. And there were fish in there. We never caught one, I don't think. But, you know, the I, that has continued into my adult life. I cannot fish. But it, there, for me, that was just childhood, really. I mean, growing up in a relatively non-urban area. And... Uh, then I, I remember in fifth grade, and there's unfortunate pictures to document this, but, you know, it was career day, and I had read a book about Eugenie Clark, who's a shark biologist, and it really, I was like, oh, I can be a biologist. I had no idea what it truly meant, but I envisioned it. I wore a safari hat and carried a butterfly net, and I was going to be an ecologist, that's what I said. And then, you know, you go through biology, and you learn a lot more about biology, and I realized that, you know, high school biology was fun, but what really appealed to me was being outside. And so I was pretty sure by the time I went through high school that I wanted to be a biologist, that I knew I wanted to be outside. So I ended up going to school in Massachusetts and uh, rural Massachusetts. Some of her academic mentors really seemed to pave the way for her success and who she is today. I discussed Jim Carlton. Um, we used to have a game of Stump Jim. You could bring him any organism, and he could idea and tell you something about it. 
He was a huge name in the field, but he also never, you never knew it. As his student, you, you didn't know that he had bigger things going on than you. And so I think from an approach of how I want to approach interacting with other people in the sciences, I mean, yes, of course, I'd love to be an expert like Jim. I would, you know, that would be the goal that I don't think I'm ever going to meet. But I also always want people to feel like Jim made us feel that here he is as a huge name in the field, but he's, you're as important as that is to him. So I think that was one of them. Accessible. Accessible. Yeah. And humble and, you know, just so enthusiastic about what he did. Like when he taught you about barnacles, he did a barnacle dance, which you may think, how is that possible? Barnacles are stuck to rock. It's a pretty easy dance. But, you know, there was just ways that he had of making it approachable. Um, another one for me is Paul Dayton. He's uh, my academic grandfather because he was Lisa Levin's advisor. And he has always preached the importance of natural history and just that, you know, time spent in the environment isn't wasted time. So I always encourage my students, before you develop a project, you need to go out and sit in that marsh for a couple days or a couple hours and put your questions in context and really get it so you don't come up with a solution that doesn't work. And Lisa would be a third one for me, too, because I think there was multiple roles for her, some of which I didn't realize. One is that she was a woman in science, I think, when it was harder to be. Um, and she had the advice of things like children. She would say subtly, like, well, there's no good time to have a kid. There are worse times to have kids, <laughs> but there's no good time. So don't sit around hold, putting your life on hold, waiting for the perfect moment. You know, and she had two kids. And I think for me, when I decided that I have one kid, that I wanted to have a kid, I didn't wait until I had tenure, or I didn't wait until academia slowed down. Yeah. And I think that was sort of good life advice. Plus, she's also just a really good scientist and has the same humility and accessibility that I think all my mentors have had. Dr. Whitcraft talks about how her mentors were humble, professional, well-rounded, accessible. And I will say that all of those traits translated into her career. And one of the experiences that really formulated her professional career was a research trip that she took to the Persian Gulf. And what that taught her was more than just science. I think it's, well, this is probably way off topic, but we could go for it. But I mean, I think that defining what it means to me to be American is always a dicey subject because some of it I'm very proud of, some of them I'm not. But being in a country where opportunities are not equally afforded to women was for me a big eye-opening experience as to how much I take for granted in the mobility that I have socially, economically here that isn't afforded in other countries. And Oman is a relatively Western-influenced country. So, you know, we were uh, in Pakistani waters when we were there. And it, it was ju it's just not a society that's as willing to accept women, particularly in roles of authority. She saw this as a challenge or a learning opportunity on how to get things done while being respectful to tradition. Yeah, it was very tricky. I mean, I don't mind abiding by some cultural traditions. Covering my head when I was there was fine because it that's a show of respect that they're not able to see hair. But, it, we, you know, we ran into it some more and the challenge of I was the co-PI on the ship. And it wasn't always welcome. The instructions would come from me to my male co-PI down. And that was fine. That's how it had to work. But it's not always... 
it was more surprising. It was good for me that, you know, it was good for me to realize that there's certain parts of culture I shouldn't take for granted. Right. You come back and you, you can just tell people what to do. <laughs> yeah, and everyone's like, right. oh, and no one questioned it. Yeah. They're all you know. Told, how about you tell your husband or whatever? You know? yeah, how would you tell your husband to tell me? Yeah. Uh, no. Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't a battle I was willing to fight at the time, but I think for me as a young scientist, I hadn't necessarily always gotten the argument about how important it was to support women in science. And that sort of drove it home. When you work in a field where 90 to 99% of what you study is gone, you got to find ways to find hope. I mean, I think the number one answer that probably gives me hope is my students. Because there's an awful lot of students who are interested and who care. And so I think that the characterization that the future generations don't care isn't correct. That's a very pessimistic way of looking at it. And I see they care. They're in these classes. They're paying to go to school. They're paying to learn what we learn. And they really do care about the ecosystems that we're studying. And some of them are going to go on to be the people who make those technological solutions we talked about or who are the person who's passionate enough to save a place. And so I think for me, I mean, knowing that they're coming through a science tradition with a conservation passion will make a difference. I'd like to thank Dr. Christine Whitcraft for taking the time to talk to us. Producers on this episode are Austin and Taylor Parker. All right, everybody, thanks for listening.